Welcome back to True Crime Trine. It's a podcast where the planets align, three friends get together and chat about three things. True crime, number one. Astrology, number two. And any weird bullshit, number three, that we can fit into this podcast. Number three could be a very big category. <laughs> it has a it lot is. of, like, sub points. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. And welcome. And right now, Otter's Butt. <laughs> welcome to Otter's Butt. Uh, you go over here now. It's not making a fart sound, so we don't need it right now, Otter. Yeah. Come on. Thanks, Otter. <laughs> All he wants to do is show his butt right now. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Audrey, you're distracting me from saying this is our 52nd episode. Yay! Whoa! Guys, wow! I know. It's crazy pants. It's so it's crazy. It doesn't feel like it's been that long, which makes me then wonder about, like, what have I been doing all this time? I don't want to think about that, actually. No, that's <laughs> not. Well, we could jump in for some minor housekeeping. Oh, could be that. That was a major burp. Now some minor ha- housekeeping. Major burp, minor housekeeping. <laughs> Corner. So in honor of Sarah's recent jury duty involving a theft at Walmart, <laughs> today I ran across an article about my hometown, my legit hometown, and there was a stabbing inside the Walmart today. Oh, no. And so I really do think that at some point we should do a Walmart-themed episode. Yes, we should. Walmartians. Shit goes down at Walmart, for real. Oh, God. I saw a, like, a short clip this morning. Oh, just, like, you wake up, you check your emails, then you just do a little bit of scrolling, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, wish I wasn't one of those people, but I am. <laughs> we all are now. <laughs> I saw, like, someone really being antagonistic to this poor woman in a Walmart, and she didn't really seem like she was really all there and Mm -hmm. kept threatening punches, but, like, would run towards him, and then, like, while he was recording, he would just kind of back up, and anyway, it was just, like, if that's the kind of people that we are when we're entering a Walmart, I don't want to be any part of it, because that was just really mean. I used to spend a lot of time at the Walmart. Marty knows there's... (laughs) <laughs> nothing else in college place <laughs> uh and it was walkable but um i did play hide and seek while high in a walmart once and that was pretty fun interesting i don't like getting high publicly but that was entertaining enough we did a, like a treasure hunt at the walmart one time like a list of things we had to fly and take pictures with but okay sounds like a we fun drunk, drunk game yeah yeah i was like we were no probably we were drunk <laughs> I do favor drunk shopping, and my sweet, sweet husband will let me do this. So anytime we've gone out on our way home, there's a Walgreens, and it's a 24-hour Walgreens. And I'm like, ooh, (laughs) let's stop at Walgreens. And he's like, oh, fuck, here we go. (laughs) What can we find? (laughs) 
tonight we are here. This is our 52nd episode. This is our technical year mark. We started TCT sometime, let's say, we'll say TCT was conceived sometime (laughs) in late March, early April of 2021. We weren't born until May 3rd. We are just a few weeks shy of TCT's actual birthday because we dropped those three killer episodes for you last year when we started. And we will say that podcasts probably have a fairly short gestation period considering (laughs) our, you know, conception in March, April, and then our birth in May. But If only they all happened that way, right? I know, because nine months is way too long. (laughs) Imagine what it's like to be an elephant then. No, thank you. (laughs) But a quick shout out to PAO. Plans are optional for making this podcast possible. Pow, pow, pow. And first and foremost, a huge thank you to both of you ladies for being the absolute best co-hosts that anyone could ever ask for. And thanks to you, our wonderful editor. Oh my God, thank you so much. (laughs) Good Lord, that's a lot of work. You're welcome. But chatting with you girls is the highlight of my week. It is also my cocktail beer cider or whatever alcohol hour. Gemini juice. Gemini (laughs) juice. So it is very appreciated. And not only are you ladies smart and funny, but you also bring the most fantastic and creepy cases for this podcast. And all the while, you are rocking your academic PhD paths and caring for your kitties, plants, and critters, and just being the most awesome of the most awesome people. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's so sweet. And then thank you to our listeners who put up with our shit and listen. Tell your friends about us. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But we appreciate the time that you take each week to listen to our weird bullshit. Yay! Wee-oo. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I had one thing, actually. Because I forgot, I think I forgot last last episode to actually tell, say my sources. Oh, okay. And so I read some books, BT dubs. Okay. I don't think I've ever actually said my sources out loud. I only do it if it's books. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And I'm going to put them on the website, but I'm going to say... If you're going to read a book, skip this one and read this one. I see, yeah. I read John Christie, The True Story of the Rillington Place Murder by Jack Rosewood, which I'd give it a solid two and a half out of five, which isn't very solid. (laughs) Okay. But the one that was much better was John Christie of Rillington Place by Jonathan Oates. And that one actually had all the information about the victims in it as well and whatnot. Okay. The one I said at... First, that one, Jack Rosewood's book. It's basically, I could probably have gotten all that information on the internet, but it was cheap. And then I didn't realize this, but I had this book on my want-to-read list for a long time. It's called Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and something else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so long. Hold on a second. Title page. And The Strangling of a City. Oh. Oh. By Kate Winkler Dawson. And so I didn't realize when I put this book on the list that it was the serial killer in question is John Christie. Okay. And yeah. at the same time as he was doing all these crimes, there was also a really disgusting smog event happening over London at the same time. Ooh. Interesting. So I just started reading this one. It was like $1.99 on Kindle when I looked last time. So I just started it, but I'm excited. Cool. 
it did make me pull the trigger to buy it when I realized that it was, uh, oh, it's John Christie. <laughs> anyway, that's what I got. Awesome. Are you going to put all of them up on our bookshelf? I'll put all of them up there. Like, Jack Rose was fine. Mm-hmm. The other one was better. Cool. Oh, Otter, look at you. So handsome. Like, he's got his warm square over here, and he would still technically be on camera, but he doesn't, he wants to be, like, on my notebook where I'm supposed to be drawing. He's the fourth member of the podcast. He's like, I'm here, ladies. Deal with it. Fifth and sixth, they're somewhere <laughs> off, wrestling or sleeping. <laughs> my two are by in the their room waiting for their food to be delivered in about 15 minutes. <gasps> so they're they've just been in there for like the last 45 minutes. Heightened awareness to their electronic overlord. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. They're learning how to tell time, but not very well. They, they always go in a little early, but... <laughs> yeah, better early than late. They rather, can tell time, but they're hoping that today will be different and it will come earlier. Um, yeah. They will be disappointed. Every time. <laughs> I lock mine out of the room because they're naughty. If I lock mine out of the room, literally Wobbles would be body slamming the door in the back in the background. So. I used to lock Otter out, but he would like scratch at the door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and bump into it and meow and stuff. And it's like, okay, fine. So now, and like, especially because my mom's not here and like the TV's not blaring. Oh, yeah. In the living room. I'll just leave it open. He can come and go now as he pleases, which apparently he just wants to be right here. In the middle, That's right? cool. Like between me and the microphone, even. So <laughs> maybe I'm like further dampened by cat fur. <laughs> you have to speak. Otter. He's your pop filter. I know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe when he moves, you'll like actually be able to tell a difference in how my voice sounds. You're like, no, Otter needs to stay there. <laughs> Kitty. Okay. So for tonight's episode, I am bringing you a Black Widow of sorts. Okay. This is certainly not our first black widow so check out episode two larissa schuster episode eight connie quedens episode 38 tilly clemack and then i kind of threw in episode 46 melissa Merritt, though she kind of falls more into that family annihilator category but you could also look at her as a black widow i'd almost throw dorothea in there too because she killed that man she met through jail letters Yes. Yes, she did. We'll throw her in there as well. She fits a lot of she fits a lot of different holes. She does. So this particular woman is special in her own kind of way. And I'm not gonna say that she's a jilted lover, but instead more of an asset accumulator. Oh, okay. That's how she makes uh. money. Yeah. So this is the story of Louise Pete. Okay. And as a side note, I did not select this case based on location. I will get back on that party train at some point in time. Okay. But for the sake of this episode, we are going to call her Pete. And Pete. not Louise, because I probably will mess up Louise more than I would Pete. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Pete, just a nice short, gets to the point. And also she went by a variety of names and aliases, but I will name a few throughout, but I'm not going to go through all of them because she was a busy lady, we'll say. So Louise Pete was born as Lofi Lee Pressler. What's the first one again? Lofi. Lofi? Lofi. Okay. I personally would have gone by Low or something like that. I'm not sure why she opted for Louise, but, you know, 
She is who she is. Better than Lofi, I have to say. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that just makes you think of bread. Well, bread's good, though. Well, she sounds like she might be an asshole. Yeah, she is very much an asshole. Okay, so maybe she should go by... No, wait, we like bread. What? Never mind. I don't. Sarah's gluten-free. Your uh, insides don't bread's like pretty much bread. garbage. Yeah. I saw a really good picture of a hamburger today, and I thought, oh my god, I can't ever have a bun like that again. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. I'll have one for you. Okay, cool. <laughs> So, Lofi Lee, or Louise Pressler, was born on September 20th of 1880. Oh, yeah. Old ones. The black, the best black widows are the old, old gals. She was born in Bienville Parish, Louisiana, to Thomas Jefferson Pressler and Elizabeth Mariah Pressler. Many articles said that Pete was the middle child, so one of three, but I was doing some ancestry searches, and it looks like she only had one younger sister, Annie Elizabeth Pressler, who was born in 1885, so we'll go with that. The Presslers were a relatively wealthy family, and T.J. Pressler, as he was called, was a a school teacher, and then later in life became a successful publisher. They were very affluent, we will say. Not a lot is mentioned about Pete's mother, but it does appear that she stayed at home to care for the girls while TJ was working. Pete would be quoted later as saying that she came from cultured and well-educated people. Additionally, she would say, quote, My parents were not delinquents and did not rear delinquent children, end quote. Okay, well, we'll see. Sure, that remains to be seen, yeah. (laughs) Right? It's not the most affectionate statement towards her parents, but this was the late 1800s, so. It just speaks to their character, I guess. Or her character. Yeah. A little of both. Yeah. The death of Pete's mother, Elizabeth, at a relatively young age, is said to have caused emotional and behavioral issues, which, duh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, fine. It may have accounted for why Pete would begin to seek male attention and become promiscuous, but this is just conjecture. I don't discount the emotional toll that would be incurred when losing a parent at a young age, but when I dug a little bit deeper, it does appear that Elizabeth died on July 13th of 1904 at the age of 35, which sucks. That's so young. Pete would have actually been around 24 at this time and not... Wait, what? Right? Did she have her when she was nine? No. So she was born in 1880, so, and Elizabeth was born in 1869. So, I mean, she was young, but not that young. But Pete's troubles began much earlier than Elizabeth's death. So I was curious about the average life expectancy during this time, because I may be a little bit older than Elizabeth was at the time of her demise. Yeah, and I feel like I'm knocking on that door. Hi. (laughs) In the 1890s to the 1900s, the average life expectancy was between 44 and 48 years. So she was cut down early. Right now, it's between 78 and 79. So I still got a few more years to go. A few. (laughs) 
Pete was sent to prestigious and expensive private schools in New Orleans, which is about five hours southeast of Bienville. Pete liked to portray herself as a quaint Southern belle. Boy. But in reality, she was a liar. (laughs) Okay. A thief and a little sociopath. Wow. Okay. Quaint. However, she was very charming. At the age of 15, Pete was expelled from a schwanky finishing school. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with what a finishing school is, it is a school for young girls that How focuses... To be proper. Right, exactly. <laughs> it teaches the young girls social skills and upper class customs or traditions in order to prepare them to enter the upper echelon of society. Ooh la la. Pete was sent packing back to Bienville due to repeated offenses of lying, theft of jewelry from students and teachers, and because of her sexual promiscuity. Evidently, petty crooks and harlots are frowned upon. Oh, in uh, the upper upper echelons? Yes. Jeez. Back in Bienville with her family, Pete continued her promiscuous ways, She was not interested in doing much more than causing trouble. She would often stay away all night doing whatever or whoever the hell she pleased. (laughs) That's a lot in that time, it seems like. And I'm not positive about this part. I found this in a few places, but more of the reputable sources did not mention this particular dude. So this is a possible first husband, possible, maybe just boyfriend. At the age of 16, Pete met Russell Anthony, who was nine years her senior. The pair moved to Dallas, Texas, and it was not long before Russell would learn that his sweet young thing was a bit of a kleptomaniac. Okay, she picked that up young and never put that back down. (laughs) Nope, not ever. She really liked jewelry, particularly diamonds. Well, a Southern Hmm. Belle. And she wasn't really interested in being monogamous. Surprise, Russell. (laughs) This relationship did not last long, and Pete would find herself right back in Bienville. In 1903, Pete met Henry Bosley. Pete pushed for marriage, and Henry obliged. Thanks, Henry. (laughs) Henry was a man of meager means, so it was pretty surprising, pretty surprising. I'm, I'm talking Southern. Jesus Christ. It was pretty surprising, given Pete's opulent lifestyle, that she would wed a traveling salesman who was paid on commission. But love is love. Is it? What are you going to do? So the newlyweds hit the road. While Henry was working hard, the pair could barely afford to stay in dumpy hotels and shanty boarding houses. Definitely not the five-star accommodations that she was accustomed to. Yeah. While Henry was working, Pete continued her deviant behavior of jewelry theft and sleeping around. Oh, maybe she just needed a ride True. instead of a husband. Right? <laughs> a ride. <laughs> it very well could be, right? Just to get from town to town. Yeah. Once in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Pete was caught stealing from other guests at the boarding house they were staying in. Thankfully, Henry was charming enough and overly apologetic enough, and so instead of calling the cops, the owner simply gave him the boot. Huh. Okay. Later, in 
Waco, Texas, she was arrested for stealing from a local jewelry shop. When Pete was brought before the judge, she used her debutante charm and some pretty big crocodile tears to express regret. See, that's finishing oh. school for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pete fooled the judge and was given a suspended sentence. Uh, what's okay. he? Bless you, and Whatever you say to birds. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <Excuse> Good job. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Henry worked really hard, but the pair were barely scraping by. He promised Pete that he would find a more steady job, but was unsuccessful in his attempts. His traveling sales gig would last a few more years until 1906. Henry returned from work to find Pete in bed with another man. Ah, not just napping. Two days later, devastated by the affair, Henry put a 32 caliber pistol to his head and pulled the trigger. Henry, no, that's an overreaction to this woman. I know that everyone processes grief differently, <laughs> but Pete did not seem to be that bothered by Henry's death. I Wow. I was surprised they were still together oh, by this time, but uh I know. She didn't waste any time, and within a few days she had sold off all of Henry's worldly possessions. Great. Henry's death was ruled a suicide. So what was this young widow to do now? I guess just keep living her normal life. (laughs) Find another ride. (laughs) Right? So some accounts say that Pete moved to Shreveport, Louisiana for a little bit until she could save up enough money to move to a more prestigious area. So what do you think Pete did to earn money? Jewelry thrift. Thrift. Promiscuity. The world's oldest Uh, profession. She was an escort. Mm-hmm. In 1911, Pete had honed her trade and moved to Boston, Massachusetts. That's a big difference. Wow. She was working ah. some wealthy men, trading her time and affection for money and gifts. She especially liked the diamonds. Oh, the diamonds again. Well, of course. Mm-hmm. Pete created an alter ego, R.H. Rosley. She claimed to be a 19-year-old heiress from Dallas, though she was... 31. So she can't be 19, right? I don't want to no. do the math, yeah. but okay. They're like, wow, you've lived a lot of life in those 19. Alice is mm-hmm. rough. She told people that her family had sent her to a convent and that she had run away. Okay. <laughs> this vagina will not be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt that that southern charm soothed whatever doubts people had had about her. A wealthy family took Pete in, and she returned the favor by stealing from the family, as well as their friends, and even their employees. Oh. What the? What are they? Mm, rude. I know. Rude. Police were alerted after some fraudulent charges were made to the family's accounts at several high-end stores in Boston. Pete's real identity was uncovered. She would not be forced to face any consequences because this family wanted to avoid the scandal but she was asked to leave boston ma'am you're no longer welcome in this this entire city fuck you entire city get the fuck out (laughs) pete then moved back to waco texas it did not take her long to find something shiny that caught her eye his name was joe appel he was a wealthy oil man he had expensive mm. taste and was known to flaunt his wealth mm-hmm, with expensive clothes 
and even more expensive jewelry, including a diamond-studded belt buckle. Damn. I'll just take one of those, please. That seems unnecessary, (laughs) but all right. (laughs) Pete and Joe started seeing each other, but this relationship would only last one week. Oh. Wow. Joe was found shot to (gasps) death, and all of his jewelry was missing. Oh, my God. Every diamond picked out of that belt buckle. Mm Mm-hmm. Pete was arrested. When she went before the grand jury, she told the court that Joe had been abusive and had tried to rape her. And she killed him in self-defense. Though, there was no mention of where all those diamonds went. Ah, yes, (sighs) self-defense. The grand jury elected not to indict Pete. Wow. She just gets away with everything. Mm Because she just seems so proper or what? Like, they're like, there's no way that this proper lady could have... I think so. Yeah. She was working that Southern Belle charm. Jeez. In 1913, Pete moved to Dallas, Texas, and she met Harry Farrote, and they quickly married. I'm guessing it wasn't his idea. <laughs> well, she hasn't been married in a while. Harry worked as the night clerk at the St. George Hotel. Like Henry, Harry was not a wealthy man. What Harry had that Henry did not was the keys to the hotel safe. Oh, oh. boy. That'll get you somewhere. Ah. Mm -hmm. Not too long after they were married, $20,000 worth of jewelry went missing from the safe. Oh, no. Jesus. This is 1913, so that's around $573,000 today. (gasps) Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Police interrogated both Henry and Pete, and Henry was cleared. Police still suspected Pete was the culprit, but they could not find any evidence linking her to the theft. Harry was crushed by the scandal. (laughs) Oh, Harry. Yeah. His reputation was ruined. And then he learns that not only is his wife a thief, she's also an adulteress. Ah, yes, Harry. That's why you just don't get married so hastily. Nope. You gotta know who they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Shit got bad real quick for Harry. Oh, no. Even worse. Some accounts say that Harry hung himself in the basement of the hotel, and others say that he was found in one of the hotel rooms dead from a gunshot wound to the head. I hope he fucking haunted the place. Right? In 1914, Pete moved to Denver, Colorado. She really does get around. She does. She met a successful businessman named Richard Pete, and this is where she will actually become Pete. Ah, okay. (laughs) From most accounts, he was the owner of a car dealership. By 1915, the couple had married, and in 1916, the Peets welcomed their daughter, Frances Ann, but they called her Betty. Not sure, sure why. Frances to Betty? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just call her Betty if you want to name her Betty. I know. I have to go with Frances. I don't know. <laughs> Things seemed to be going okay for the couple. Richard was able to provide more than adequate financial support, and he spoiled his new wife. She was pretty satisfied. Pretty satisfied. Not 100%. Mm. At the age of 36 now, it seemed as if life was coming up roses for Pete. That seems like a good landing spot. Mm Mm-hmm. But dun-dun-dun. As it needs to be, because this is a true crime podcast <laughs> And they live again. happily ever after. <laughs> Surprise! 52nd episode. 
Richard's business would soon start to suffer oh. in 1919 to 1921 due to the end of World War I and wartime production, the U.S. economy went into recession. Oh. Hmm. This is not the Great Depression. It was a relatively short recession, but it was very, very painful. Mm-hmm. As 1920 was the single most deflationary year in American history. So with the economy in the tank, Richard's business started to wane. And no one's buying cars. <laughs> They're like, I don't even go anywhere. I can't even buy anything if I go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, Excuse me. Prickly pear is a burpy burpy cider. Sounds like we could use some finishing school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nah, fuck that. Oh my god, TCT goes to finishing school. That should be like a a reality show. <laughs> so the couple started fighting. Right, financial troubles often cause severe issues in a tumultuous relationship. So what's a girl to do? Leave, kill her husband, steal <laughs> car. Uh. It's door number one, door number two, or door number three. Much like the Christie's from last week's episode, the Pete's separated but stayed married. Oh. Okay. That's the best option out of all the ones that we've put forth. So far. Yeah. In the summer of 1920, Pete decided that putting a thousand miles between herself and Richard would be beneficial. <laughs> She's like, this kid. is enough. Well, some mm. articles say that Pete took little Betty with her, and others say that she left Betty with Richard. Bah. Either way, she packed her shit, and she moved to L.A. You're right. Okay. Jacob Denton was a retired mining engineer from Nevada. He had made millions during his career and had settled into a 14-room Tudor mansion at 675 South Catalina Street near Wilshire Boulevard. Jacob had a teenage daughter, Frances, from his first marriage, which she did go by I was by like, Frances. wait, Betty? Nope, not Betty. <laughs> Frances lived in Arizona with her mother, Sarah. Jacob had remarried to a woman named Dolly, but sadly, Dolly and their infant daughter, Martha, had recently succumbed to influenza. Mm. There are a few stories here of how Jacob and Pete became acquainted. One was that Jacob had put an ad in the newspaper for a housekeeper. And then the other was that Jacob had put an ad in the newspaper to rent his home while he was on a business trip. Bottom line is that Pete's now living in Jacob's home. Is Jacob there? Yes. Oh, okay. It did not take her long to start stealing items from his home. No. I was going to say Southern Charm and marrying him, but okay. I think Jacob was a little smarter. Okay. That's good. Good for him. There would be some controversy about Pete's relationship with Jacob because before too long, she did start accompanying him to social functions. So it seemed like she was neither a tenant nor a housekeeper, but more of a live-in girlfriend. Person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something along those lines. Which yeah. seems super scandalous in like mm-hmm. 1920, but. Yeah. Pete did ask Denton to marry her, but he refused. Has she asked every person that she's gotten married to? Has she been the one that asked every time? I think so. I mean, that's the easiest way to access their estate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't want to wait around. In late May of 1920, Jacob asked his niece to take an inventory of his home and personal effects. On or around May 30th of 1920, Jacob and Pete attended a party at his niece's house. And during that party, Jacob's niece gave him the results of this inventory. 
Oh. This would be the last time that friends and family would see Jacob alive. Whoa. Oh, no. Wow. It would take almost no time for Pete to assume the lady of the house role at Jacob's mansion. <laughs> a few days later, Pete asked the gardener to move a load of dirt to the basement because she wanted to grow mushrooms. Like weed? <laughs> mushrooms. Okay. Psilocybin mushrooms? Sauce. <laughs> The gardener did as she asked, though it appears the gardener never went to check up on that particular pile of dirt. Great. Maybe he's not allowed in the house very often. That could he's be an true. outside worker. Mm-hmm. Within a few days, Pete tried to cash a $300 check, which today would be about $4,200, and she tried to gain access to Jacob's safety deposit box by forging his signature. The bank manager noticed the discrepancy in the signature, and when Pete asked, she told him that she had to help Jacob sign because his right arm had been amputated. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Didn't you hear? Right? After he was shot by this mysterious Spanish woman. Oh, Spanish, Spanish woman. woman. Mm -hmm. Exotic. Great. Now we're throwing race into it, too. I know. So when friends and family began to inquire about Jacob's whereabouts, she's told a few of the following stories. I can never just choose one. It's easier if you stick to one. Dial it in there, Pete. Come on. But almost like Richard Crafts from episode 11, she had a variety of stories to tell. So the most frequent story was the one that she had told the bank manager, right? That he had his arm amputated because he had this altercation with this mysterious Spanish woman in which he was shot. The second was that he was in hiding because he was shot and had his arm amputated. He was embarrassed. Right. <laughs> and then the third was that he was on an extended business trip to a variety of locations, depending on who she was telling the story to. Mm. Daphne is not home, and he may or may not have two arms. It's all we really know right now. <laughs> Pete was spending Jacob's money. I do think the bank declined that to cash that one particular check, but my best guess is that Jacob stashed cash around the house like many people did back then. Mm -hmm. She was also driving his Cadillac. She was pawning his jewelry and what other valuables from inside the house. She even started to rent out the rooms of the mansion. And mind you, this is a 14-room mansion. Oh, and then pocketed the rent money. She also went around town and charged expensive clothes and jewelry to Jacob's store accounts because store accounts were still a thing back then. This girl literally had no fucking shame. Wow. I mean, I guess she told him that he was on a business trip, but um, mm -hmm. okay. Many of Jacob's friends were concerned, but it seemed Pete had an explanation for everything. However, his monthly support check to his daughter Frances in Arizona was not sent for several months. Several months? Jesus. Several months. She's just been living there? Mm-hmm. Oof. Frances wow. tried to contact her father, but was unsuccessful. Finally, with the help of her mom, they hired an attorney to locate Jacob. The attorney started to ask questions around town and then even spoke to Pete. Within a few weeks and probably feeling the pressure from the attorney's inquiry, Pete rented the entire house out, packed her shit, and moved back to Denver to live with her husband and daughter. Oh, now it's time for me to come back to you, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. <sighs> it's getting a little hot down here. I gotta go. <laughs> Great timing. 
On September 23rd of 1920, a private detective that was hired by that attorney searched 675 South Catalina Boulevard. Did they find mushrooms? (laughs) It shouldn't come as a shock. But Jacob's decomposing remains were located in that pile of dirt that was slated for growing mushrooms. I mean, Mm. excellent mushroom material. Yeah, lots of nitrogen in there for them. The autopsy showed that Jacob had been shot in the head and strangled. His body had been wrapped in a quilt and bound with a variety of cords. And in the upstairs closet, a thirty-two caliber pistol was found. Pete was quickly located in Denver. Police questioned her about Jacob's murder. She claimed to have no involvement, but did tell investigators about this mysterious Spanish woman who had shot him months before. And clearly, that woman had to have come back to finish the job. Must be. And I just lived in his house for a couple months. Right? Don't worry about it. Police were able to disprove this theory rather quickly, as the autopsy showed both arms were still fully intact (laughs) on the remains. (laughs) Damn. Minor detail there, Pete. Oh, Pete, you really... Big picture, girl. Pete would also counter, after her first story was dismissed, that the body must have been that of a double that Jacob had killed himself. Okay. Okay. We still know where Jacob is. He had a double for some reason. Uh... (laughs) Investigators were not swayed by any of Pete's claims or her outrageous stories. She was extradited back to California. Pete was indicted on one count of first-degree murder. All right. So, her trial, January 21st of 1921. This was not necessarily the crime of the century, but this case and trial were heavily publicized, and spectators would line up to watch Pete. And she was escorted by her husband, Richard, as they entered the Hall of Justice at 211 Temple Street in downtown Los Angeles. Why is he there? Because he's supporting his wife. Okay, so he's an idiot. Well, let's go easy on poor Mr. Richard. Okay, Mr. Richard. We'll, We'll get to that. The district attorney, Thomas Lee Woolwine, provided the court with a ton of witnesses and evidence destroying all of Pete's claims. Defense, however, would bring their own witnesses to support Pete's claims. One witness testified that they saw a Spanish-looking woman at Jacob's home in early May. Sure. Okay. Another witness testified that they saw Jacob in June with only one arm. Uh, Well, that's (laughs) really not going to fly if we know what the autopsy Yeah. (laughs) And another witness that said on the day of the supposed crime, she was with Pete. And that Pete was in high spirits, laughing and dancing. No one in that good of a mood could have just committed a heinous murder. <laughs> Aw, it's so innocent. That's so sweet. You're wrong, but that's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. On February 17th of 1921, the all-male jury would deliberate for four oh. hours. Hey, that's longer than some of the recent cases we've had. Yeah. Yes. They returned their verdict of guilty. Okay. All right. The jurors had voted eight to four for the death penalty, but because it was not unanimous, Pete was sentenced to life in prison. Richard Pete stood by his wife during the trial and the first few years of her incarceration. Jesus, Rich. Mm-hmm. In 1923, Pete told Richard that she wanted a divorce so that he could move on with his life. Ah, <laughs> oh, so nice of you. 
Richard agreed, but he still wrote to Pete frequently. However, she stopped answering his letters. She, she's stone heart yeah. bitch. Mm-hmm. Getting another ride. Wow. <laughs> in 1924, Richard was found in an Arizona hotel room with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Oh. Okay, these are all suicides. She must have been really fucking charming. <laughs> right? What about their kid? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay. There wasn't a lot of information on Betty, but most of the sources say that after her mother's conviction that her name got changed to avoid any scandal or any backlash. To Francis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. <laughs> Betty Francis. And then after her father died, she was adopted and then moved out of the area. Okay. Okay. Pete was sent to San Quentin State Prison, but then transferred to the California Institution for Women in Tehachapi. You may be thinking that this is the end of my story, but it is not. I was like, I don't. (laughs) Nope. Pete served 18 years of her life sentence, and this should have been the end of the story. But Pete was sentenced to life in prison, not life in prison without parole. (gasps) What? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, no. fuck, you guys. Okay. (sighs) Pete began applying for parole as soon as she was eligible. She had been turned down quite a few times. However, in early 1939, Pete's case came up for consideration again. A reporter, Caroline Walker, who had covered the trial, spoke out against Pete's release, stating, quote, That woman is too dangerous to be set loose on society. Our men! (laughs) Carolyn knows. (laughs) She has managed to exist all her life by lying and by violence. Mark my words, if you turn her loose, it's going to be tragic for someone, end quote. Yeah. Parole board member and parole officer Emily Dwight Latham, who was in support of Pete, stated, quote, That's the trouble with you newspaper people. You just can't believe prison can reform a person, end quote. Not all of them. And not prison in general, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, no, the system's fucked. Ugh. On April 11th, 1939, Pete, at age 59, was released from Tehachapi to the custody of Jessie Marcy. Not much is, was said about Jessie. She had been an advocate for Pete's release and offered Pete a position as a housekeeper while she settled back into quote-unquote normal life. Mm-hmm. However, shortly after Pete's release, Jessie died. <laughs> What? Weird. Yeah. How many Hmm. arms did she have? (laughs) Two. Ah. Fortunately for Pete, Emily Dwight Latham stepped in. She was that parole board member who had spoke out against the reporter. If there wasn't anybody to step in for Jesse's place, would she have had to go back to prison? I don't think so. I think you just have to have gainful employment is what it was. So she most likely would have figured something out i'm guessing but emily heard about this and was like me 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 interesting all right great idea emily emily had some health issues and so she asked pete who was now going by anna lee to help (laughs) these name changes i know but she asked her to help care for her and then kind of take care of her household. And this worked out really well for both of them until 1943 when emily died well from what health (laughs) We hope. 
It's mentioned that it was potentially a heart attack or a stroke, and the police did investigate both of these deaths, and they did determine that they were by natural causes, but hmm. still, it's suspicious. That's super especially Sus- Jesse's. Mm-hmm. A retired social worker, Margaret Logan, had met Pete while at the women's prison in Tehachapi. Margaret had taken a liking to Pete, so when she learned of her circumstances, she reached out. Margaret and her husband, Arthur, lived in Pacific Palisades, which is an affluent area just outside of Santa Monica. Perfect. That's fitting for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Margaret was in need of a caregiver for her husband, Arthur, who was suffering from dementia. Oh. Perfect. Margaret also needed help around the house. In early 1944, Pete accepted the offer and moved in with the Logans. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Margaret was a kind-hearted and caring person, and she believed that Pete had been wrongfully accused. She went out of her way to help Pete get her life back on track, including filling out the monthly parole reports as required by the court. Okay. Soon after, starting with the Logans, Pete began telling the neighbors that Arthur was prone to fits and that he would become physically abusive. Now, this may be true because dementia is a serious illness, which can cause very dramatic cognitive, behavioral, and mood changes. Yeah, they're sometimes not really themselves anymore, and it's really sad. But this bitch is also a liar. She's also, yeah, setting up a story here. Exactly. In May 1944, Pete, at the age of 63, met banker Lee Judson, who was 67, and the pair married. <laughs> Did she ask? It didn't say. Will you marry me? I'm Probably. guessing so. However, the pair had to keep their marriage a secret because it was some sort of parole violation. I'm not sure how, but... For her, yeah, it makes sense. Maybe she's not right? supposed to be around money. <laughs> Possibly. Or men who are interested in her. Yeah, or just people. So Pete would introduce Lee to friends and neighbors and to Margaret as her friend. Oh. This is my special friend. Oh. Mm-hmm. The marriage was not the only secret, as Pete had failed to mention to Lee that she was a convicted murderer. I was just going to ask, like, does Surprise! he even know? That's why he. That's why she had to ask. Pete would split her time between the Logans in the Palisades and then a hotel in Glendale where she and Lee were staying for the time. Fun. So the next part is a little fuzzy. Some articles talk about Margaret being involved in real estate and Pete had convinced her that she had inherited this estate in Denver, which if she was going to inherit anything, it would be in Louisiana, but whatever. Margaret was trying to obtain this other property and Pete said that she would help her financially if she could sell this property in Denver. So Margaret paid for Pete to return to Denver to look into selling that family estate. Not quite sure why she needed to go back to Denver because Richard was dead and Mm -hmm. her daughter was not living in that area anymore. However, this never panned out. So surprise, surprise, Margaret was upset, but still very understanding. In late May of 1944, Margaret discovered that Pete had forged a $200 check, so about $3,200 today. Oh, wow. Damn. That's like how much money we make a year. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you forged a fucking check for that? For my salary? Hate it. Right? 
That reminds me of the time that you see system like accidentally gave you <laughs> ten thousand, and they're like, "We're gonna need that back." And you're like, "What?" Well, no, no, no. Why? I ended up giving it back because right. it came up on my taxes. But it's like you should be able to keep that because, like, that was I don't know. My first year at Davis, it got. $10,000 got deposited in my account on my birthday. And I was like, you're like, happy birthday. Oh, cool. I mean, I didn't notice it for a while. I wasn't looking at my bank account that much because it was empty. It's money laundering. But I'm just like, ill-gotten gains. Or I don't know. But, or something like that. But then that. I got my taxes and it's like, you owe us a bunch of money. And I was like, there's no way I owe you any money. <laughs> I'm <poor."> Yeah, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. That was also... It was like they were using you for money laundering purposes. Yeah, because when I went to try to give it back, I was like, look, this I gave it back, but it was still on my tax return because I didn't get whatever. So I went back yeah. to like be like, hey, look, I was not paid this much money. The $10,000, because it was December 30th. Yeah. It was there for two days that year before <laughs> I gave it back, but it went on to my taxes. And then I forgot, somebody at the accounting office told me that the W-2s are only suggestions. Huh. What? And uh, I really? should just write down what I think I got paid. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I got paid, like, 15, basically. Oh, this might be why I got audited. Probably. <laughs> A couple years later. <laughs> I, uh, I, did, I just did my taxes today, and I was fucking livid. I did uh, definitely not put the number that was on the W-2 onto my taxes that year, because I did not have that money. <laughs> Oops, anyway, tax season, guys. Yes. It's a real thing. I got paid like, uh, what is it? Like two grand for the entire summer last last year. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is ridiculous because I actually work like more than 12 hours a day for six days a week there when I'm when I'm doing that. And I only mm-hmm. got paid two grand for the several weeks that I was. Yeah, that's stupid. Anyway, it felt it felt bad. But then <laughs> like add insult to injury. I'm not an expert on taxes, but I because I had a 1099 NEC. I had to file that one for Massachusetts or risk getting audited, mm-hmm. which then cost an extra fifty dollars mm. to be able to register that tax return with yep. the state of Massachusetts, and then also still my normal state oh, return. Oh, fuck off! Yeah, so it like bumped me up into like a higher tier of what I needed for like the TurboTax, and I was like, "Fuck, man, <laughs> that's annoying, <laughs> so, so annoying." It's just like, so <laughs> I had to pay taxes on my two grand, and then also the fee just for filing to pay it. the taxes. Ah, yeah, I'm like, could I just? Can you just gift this to me next year instead? <laughs> I know. Can you just pay me out of the table or whatever? If you do it as a donation, you get to write it off too, MBL. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're kidding. Anyway. On a super, super side note, I just had a thought and it's, you know, my brain's weird. But TCT should do a series of children's books that are bizarre but fun. So we could do... <laughs> what? We could do Hannah the Money Mule. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that'd be cute. Right? <laughs> I think we could be pretty creative in some storylines. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have a, that sounds We like have fun. an artist. Yes. Ooh, on staff. that would be fun. Right? TCT produces children's books. <laughs> it would it's be like fun. really dark. With a, <laughs> but also. a true crime lesson. Yeah. You know, true crime moms would really love these books. Oh my god! Like when you go abroad, like, <laughs> don't talk to strangers. That's like great. Don't agree to hold on to anyone's bag for them. Right. They could be like safety books too. Yeah. Anywho's. So love it. again, Pete had forged this two hundred dollar check, and Margaret told Pete, which I really can respect. This she told Pete that. 
it's your responsibility to make this right. Not mine, but yours. Make it right. Because I'm going to say, like, that's great of you to say, Margaret, but, like, she's a criminal. (laughs) (laughs) And Margaret knows this, too, Uh. which is even more surprising. But Pete tried to raise the money, but she was not successful. So I'm I'm not sure if she was still utilizing some of her skills or if she was being faithful to her latest husband. On May 29th of 1944, Pete left the Glendale Hotel. She told Lee that she needed to go talk with Margaret. Great. And dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Goodbye, we'll talk. Margaret. Margaret banished. Margaret, for being a social worker her whole life, mm-hmm. never got jaded, I guess. I guess not. nice, but also didn't work out. Nice, but not useful. It didn't work yeah. out. Yeah. On June 1st of 1944, Pete had Arthur committed to the Patton ha. State Hospital, oh. which is a hospital for the insane. She claimed to be his foster sister. And honestly... No. I'm going to throw this out there. This is probably one of the nicer things she's ever done. Instead of just get rid of him? Well, A, she could have killed him. She could have killed him. B, she could have dumped him somewhere, right? Because he's got dementia. He wouldn't know the difference. Dumped him off somewhere and let him fend for himself. She actually had him committed, so he was receiving care. Taken care of. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It's surprising. Out of character. Mm Mm-hmm. Pete and Lee would then move into the Logan's home. That's not how you get a home, my dude. (laughs) When the neighbors started asking about where the couple were, Pete would tell them that Arthur, in one of his dementia rages, had bitten Margaret's nose off (gasps) and left her horribly disfigured. So she doesn't want to come outside anymore. Don't worry about it. embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Oh. That is slightly more embarrassing than having your arm amputated. <laughs> and so she said that Margaret was just so embarrassed by this disfigurement that she went into hiding or that she was currently away getting a reconstructive surgery. Okay. No. For the next six months, Pete and Lee lived very comfortably enjoying the ocean view from the Logan's Pacific Palisades home. Pete was spending their money. Of course. Pawning and selling off their valuables. Lee even asked Pete about Margaret's whereabouts, to which she used the same story she told the neighbors. So it doesn't sound like Lee was the brightest crayon in the box. Nah. He's just happy to be here. Right. The neighbors and friends would stop asking about Margaret eventually. And so Pete maybe still had some of that Southern charm in her. (laughs) It seemed like no one was really missing Margaret after all. Oh, that's super sad. That's really sad. Pete made sure to submit her parole reports with a freshly forged signature each month. Little did she know that this simple action would be her undoing. Is she that bad of a forger? Maybe. On December 6th of 1944, Arthur died at the Patton State Hospital. Pete told the hospital administrators to go ahead and donate his body to science because that's what Arthur would have wanted. Oh. Well, not the worst place to take his body. It's it's a better idea. It's not, but doesn't he have something written? Like, for what to do? Yeah. No, well. Okay. 
my thought train was depending on the services at a funeral. So back then, a funeral could cost anywhere between four hundred and eight hundred dollars, which today would be sixty five hundred to thirteen thousand. Which yeah, they're expensive. Crazy. So I'm pretty confident in my assumption that Pete was just not willing to shell out this type of money for his funeral. So if you donate his body, then it's gone and she doesn't have to pay anything. And she might even get some sort of payment back to her for that. I don't know how that works. Yeah, write that donation on your taxes. Right? I gave a corpse to science. Right? (laughs) Don't ask me where the corpse came from. That's what has not been on the tax forms I've filled out, but... um. I haven't seen that line item either. No. So after Arthur passed, Pete's parole officer, Mrs. Weisbrod, was reading through like a backlog of reports. And she's looking at Pete's and she noticed that there was a change in handwriting. She's just a shitty ass forger. Right. She didn't learn this in prison. Starting back in in June, Mrs. Weisbrod notified the chief investigator for the district attorney's office, and his name was Walter Lentz. And she told Lentz that she believed that Pete was signing these records for herself. Mm. This is a parole violation. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. Yeah. (laughs) Among other things. Lentz asked what she had done time for and that's what mrs weisbrod said quote first degree murder she served 18 years for the denton killing end quote yeah. around the same time an alert employee at the logan's bank detected one of the forged signatures on a check and notified police so mm, it's all coming together all these things are coming together so lens notified the district attorney fred hauser who quickly turned this over to homicide detective thad brown to investigate detective brown quickly and quietly began to interview the logan's friends and their neighbors interestingly he learned that margaret had not been seen since the end of may and that pete and her husband had taken up residence in the logan's home they were even doing some remodeling as if they owned the place huh i did say this is not the way to get a home but as the housing market is as it is it it actually might be the Mm -hmm. way to get a home (laughs) (laughs) the only way anymore yeah Unless you are embezzling. (laughs) So all of the people that Brown interviewed told him about this crazy story about her nose and the disfigurement. And he's just thinking, the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Like, mm. So Brown went back and he looked into Arthur's records at the hospital. And he noted that since he was committed in June, Arthur had had no visitors. So it wasn't like she was actually a caretaker for Arthur. Uh Uh-huh. On December 20th of 1944, multiple officers arrived at the Logan's home. Detective Brown rang the bell and Pete answered the door. He asked, where is Margaret And that's when the lies just started pouring out. I mean, she can't do anything else at this point. Yeah. Pete initially tried to say that Margaret's over at the hospital. Don't you know that Arthur just died? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I I do. (laughs) (laughs) 
Since that didn't work, she then tried to explain that Margaret hadn't been in the house for a while because she was recovering from plastic surgery. She had her nose bitten off, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brown pushed further, and Pete promptly repeated the disfigurement story that she had been telling the neighbors. Detective Brown had his suspicions, and he had heard these stories, and he knew that it was just a bunch of bullshit. Good. So then he looked at Pete and asked her, aren't you on parole? (laughs) (laughs) And for once in her life, Pete actually told the truth. Okay. I think she knew that her goose was about to be cooked. I don't know. She really committed to lying for a long time the last time, though. Detective Brown asked her if she had been forging her parole reports. Mm. And did she say... Pete attempted to sway Detective Brown as she claimed that Margaret had asked her to do so because she was just too busy to do them herself. Uh Uh-huh. While I can only picture Detective Brown's, sure, sure, you fucking liar Uh face. uh Uh-huh, I'm just picturing an eyebrow, like, ever increasing to the hairline. Up into his hair, (laughs) disappears completely. Mm Mm-hmm. Pete sighed and said, quote, you know Gene Biscalis, the Los Angeles County Sheriff? Oh. He told me someday I'd blow my top again. I'd like to talk to him and no one else. Let me see uh. Gene. End quote. Well, wow. Well, that was a twist. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah. Is Gene alive? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe not now. This was back in oh. the 40s. Yeah, yeah, back in the 40s. He's definitely dead now. <laughs> At that point, Pete and Lee were removed to the Hall of Justice for further questioning. Dumbass Lee. Just, what's happening, Mm -hmm. guys? I thought I left Where are we going? This is my house. (gasps) We're going for a car ride? Yay. Yay. Oh, this is a weird room. It has bars for doors. (laughs) (laughs) So officers began searching the Logan's home and property. In the back of the property, Detective Brown noticed something. Is it mushrooms? (laughs) Mushrooms. Not quite. He instructed some of the other officers to start digging. And there, at the base of a large avocado tree, police recovered the decaying remains of Margaret Logan. It's in the backyard. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Back at the Hall of Justice, Pete had been speaking with Sheriff Biscalis for, like, three hours. In the end, she made a nine-page statement. She denied killing Margaret, but instead spun yet another tale. So she claimed that Arthur had viciously beaten Margaret in one of his dementia rages and then shot her. Whoa! Pete admitted to then sedating Arthur, but then decided to bury Margaret in the yard because, well, you know, she's a convicted murderer. They weren't going to believe. Ah, yes, sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is like Dorothy all over again. Kind of, yeah. They didn't let her out for a beer, though. Ah, well. <laughs> Back at the Logan home, another detective located a thirty-two caliber revolver in the upstairs bedroom with the initials E.B.L. Detectives would later find that this gun had belonged to Emily Latham. Wait, who's Emily Latham? <laughs> She's the parole officer. Who <gasps> the first? Oh, the first yeah. one. The second one. Oh, the second one. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Additionally, crime scene technicians found a 32 caliber slug in the living room wall. Oh, all right. Leave it there. The autopsy showed that Margaret had essentially been beaten to death and then shot. Lee, Pete's husband, (laughs) 
was shocked oh god by what the detectives were telling him he believed the stories that pete had told him and he said quote everything she told me seemed so plausible i never had any reason to doubt her she is the sweetest dearest most kindly woman i have ever known she couldn't have possibly been connected with the murder of miss logan End quote. Holy. Even after he was told that she had gone to jail for murder before. Yep. There's definitely a chance, Lee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Pete and Lee were both arrested. Yeah. On January 11th of 1945, all charges against Lee Judson were dropped due to insufficient evidence. We can't charge you for just being unbelievably gullible. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a few accounts of what happened the following day. Number one, Lee jumped from the (gasps) ninth floor of the Spring Arcade office building to his death. Oh, my God. The second was that Lee took an elevator to an unnamed office building in downtown L.A. and took a header down the center of a stairwell. Wow. Seems like we should be able to figure out which one happened, but God Which one? Yeah, but then also, like... What is she telling these men that leads to them just just commit suicide when they can't be with her anymore? I don't know. Or not commit suicide. What is it called? Die by suicide. But but like, I don't even know if like she had any interaction with Lee after they were both arrested. No. The result was the same. Lee died by suicide. Yeah. But unlike Pete's previous lovers and husbands, she could not have been involved in this because... Her ass was in jail. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, right. The other ones are super suspicious. Sorry, Lee, for uh, making fun of you. But uh, yeah, it's not sad. Not sorry, but sorry. <sighs> so trial number two. Yay. On April 23rd of 1945, Pete's trial for the first degree murder of Margaret Logan began. Presiding over the case was the Honorable Judge Harold B. Landreth. The jury this time consisted of 11 women and one man. Not to be swayed by her feminine wiles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, except a number of women were swayed. Jesse... What's her Elizabeth Layden and Margaret were all swayed. Right, but they weren't jurors. They were just like but fucking trying what's to help her, someone. The, Elizabeth Layden was like a parole officer. Yeah. So this trial was also widely publicized, and it was really only shadowed by the international news of Hitler's death by suicide on April 30th of 1945. I see which one makes the main page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She might have been below the fold. Ah, okay. You gotta, you gotta flip it over. Oh my god. Like, yeah. Would you even bother if you saw Hitler had died? Like, I'd just go to the bar and start celebrating. Right. Dancing in the street. So, predictably, Pete's public defender oh had tried desperately to cooperate. To cooperate. Fuck. To co- corroborate. Damn it. To corroborate. Pete's public defender tried desperately to corroborate. That's still not right, but that's okay. No, that's right. That sounded good. Okay. Her claims that Arthur was responsible. The prosecution hit back hard. The state entered the transcript from the Denton trial into evidence. Ooh. Oh. The similarities between the two crimes could not be a coincidence. And at this trial, Pete did take the stand to testify in her own defense. (laughs) But now, at 65, it seemed as if she had used up all that Southern charm. You know, she had 
Yeah. She had used it so often. Mm-hmm. And she had she had a bunch of women on her thing too, right? Yeah. So they're not like men thinking, oh, wow, what a polite sure. lady. These are women thinking like, yeah, I could murder someone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is realistic. It's like how men just didn't believe women could commit real crimes for a long time. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When asked, did you kill Mr. Denton? Pete replied, quote, I did not. I did not know to this very day whether he is dead or alive, end quote. <laughs> Why were you in prison then the first time? Because she said it was the double, remember? Uh, oh. Somewhere out there, he's just wandering around without an arm. Yeah, one-armed Denton just hiding. Mm-hmm. On, it was either May 28th or May 31st. There's It's reported as both. But the jury deliberated for three hours before returning the verdict of guilty. Okay, better be fucking guilty, women. <laughs> without a recommendation for mercy. Ooh. What does that mean in court? DP? On June 1st of 1945, Judge Landreth sentenced Pete to death. Wow. How was death being done in California in 1945? I just met which way. Was it still hanging? So Pete was returned to her previous stomping ground. Hey, Tehachapi. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Remember me? I've only been gone, like, what, a, a year? No, it's been a few years. It's been a few. All right, well. Pete attempted several appeals, but none of these were successful. And honestly, California was just like, bitch, you done. But shut up. (laughs) We've been there and done that. We're not letting you out again. So Pete would be the second woman in California and one of four to be executed in the gas chamber. (gasps) Wow. Wow. (laughs) I had... Realize they had it up and running. Okay. Mm-hmm. So check out episode 41, the Robert Mueller case, where Hannah tells us all about death by a gas chamber. Yay! Woo! On April 10th of 1947, Pete was transported from Tehachapi to the Ready Room in San Quentin. Yeah. The Ready Room. I liked what they called it. She spent a fitful night awaiting her execution. I probably couldn't sleep either, but like... So she needs to be like well rested or anything. No. <laughs> On April 11th of 1947, Pete was taken to the gas chamber. Her last words were, quote, I'm ready. I've been ready for a long time. End quote. Oh, wow. Ready in the ready room. Last meal. Noise. I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't find it. At 10.43 a.m. on April 11th, 1947, Pete was dead. All right. Her clothes were burned and the chamber was decontaminated. And then Pete was interred in an unmarked grave at Angeles Roseville Cemetery in Los Angeles. Wow. Why? Mm-hmm. I don't know why she took her body back to L.A., but uh, <laughs> other than that, sure. But, uh... but that is the story of Louise Pete. Well, that uh, original lady journalist is just like, fucking told you guys. Fucking nailed yeah. it. Fucking told you guys. Mm-hmm. So for astrology, Louise Pete, she was born September 20th, 1880. She's a Virgo. All about that money. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if this is our first Virgo. I just, I can't remember anymore. Probably not. So Virgos are methodical and they are quick thinkers. The downside to that is that they do exert a lot of mental energy. And so they 
have a tendency to get pretty stressed out. Ha <laughs> Yes, they do. <laughs> they are Can confirm. an earthy sign and they are known to be practical and efficient, but they are also notorious for being stubborn. They frequently assume that they know best and because they're the most committed to it, right? Oh, yeah. She did commit. You are very unlikely to get a Virgo to change their plans or their vision. <laughs> or their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There's Yeah, there's the mule again. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and due to their very active minds, they do have a tendency to also overthink their emotions and then also their behavior. So... Okay, Paul Michael Stefani was also a Virgo, but he was a very poor example of a Virgo. Okay. Because he was just the weepy-voiced killer, just yeah, crying all the time. But um, I'm so sad. Oh, my God. People. Why do I murder people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is a more, um, this one I feel is uh, more canonical. Yes. The, the money part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She had her plans. Right. And she had these, these, even though they were like ridiculous, but she had these like crafted stories. And she stuck by him. For the most part. I mean, she Kinda. had a few variations, but like. She learned quickly about like, you got to stay with the same. <laughs> Pick one and go from there. She was yeah. able to like yeah. manipulate people for her own gain, which. Oh, yeah. Wasn't necessarily a Virgo trait, but like. An unevolved Virgo to try to get what they want wouldn't be opposed to it. Mm-hmm. I was sad because I did have her birth date and location, but I couldn't do a needle for her because she was born in 1880. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It only goes back to like 1900. And so yeah. anyways, I was pretty curious to see what, you know, her Mercury was and stuff like that. But I'm going to say it's Aries season. True. Maybe a little Aries. She's fiery. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But she wasn't Scorpio. Like, she didn't want to possess these people. She just, they were more of a, a means to an end, like, whatever. I think she was, like, you know, not, like, keeping up with the Joneses, but she was, like, I see what you have and I want and it for I want myself. That. Yeah. hmm Yeah. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. Aries. Yeah. So. But, uh, <laughs> soon Aries season will be over. We'll stop dragging them. <laughs> And beyond to the next one. What's next? Taurus. Taurus? Yeah. Taurus. Our podcast is a Taurus. It is. So it's it's this nice comfort. If you're one of those people that listen to true crime to comfort yourself, our mm-hmm. podcast is perfect for that. It is. Do either of you have any other astrology for this episode? I do not. I don't even know when this is coming out. <laughs> no, I've, I've, uh, I suck at that. <laughs> I have a few little tidbits and a quote. Okay, good. I have. I don't have a quote either. This episode is going to air on Monday, April 11th, and on Tuesday, April 12th, and I'm super excited about this. Jupiter in Pisces is going to be conjunct with Neptune in Pisces, and Ooh. we are going to get a major dose of peaceful, creative, and oh, loving yeah. vibes. And it's actually going to last all week. Oh my god, this is nice. a nice ass week. It's gonna vacation? be vacation. Good. No, no. I got to teach, but <laughs> yeah, no time. But also, the Sun in Aries will be sextile with Saturn in Aquarius, and this aspect makes us be more in tune with the needs of other people. Oh, that's Ooh. nice because then we can give that 
loving, peaceful energy out to other people as well. Mm -hmm. So if you are feeling this altruistic aspect, you may want to reach out to us. Or rate and review us on any of your podcast platforms. Yes, please. That too. But we can be reached on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com and then check out our website www.truecrimetrine.com. And for a quote, yes. I'm going with Big Ben, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, it's like the clock. <laughs> <laughs> dong, dong. <laughs> There's the Perfect quote. cut. Time ticking by. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going with Ben Franklin. Quote, you may delay, but time will not. End quote. And nothing can be truer for me this week. Oh, no. Because I finished this episode at 821 and we started recording at 830. 830. So, boom. Yeah, boom. I did it. We did it. <laughs> Woo. Bam. There you go. Bye-bye. Bye. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production... Well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.